This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Brinefield Services Company, Zolandez. Check them out at zolandez.com. That's Z-E-L-A-N-D-E-Z dot com. Hi, it's Joe Lowry. Welcome to another episode of the Global Lithium Podcast. Today is episode 142. My guests are Anad Sheth, the Lithium Raj, and Roland Shivas. They are the co-founders of the International Lithium Association. Roland is a relative newcomer to the industry, but Anad Sheth cemented his place in the history of the industry long ago. One of the early people into China selling green bushes, spodumene. Anad knows from his early customer, Jiang Weiping, who started Tianqi, to Li Langbing and Wang Shen, and later on, Li Nanping. There are a lot of historical references here. Anad worked closely with my guest on Global Lithium Podcast, Episode 3, Mike Tomlin, who was also one of the early players in China. He also worked with Iggy Tan, who I don't think gets enough credit for the innovations he tried to bring to the industry. Because of timing, things didn't work out for Iggy at Galaxy, but I have a lot of respect for what he tried to do. He simply was too early and ahead of his time. After we cover Anad's deep experience in China and elsewhere, we'll talk about the International Lithium Association, which is a fairly recent development, and we'll talk about what they're trying to accomplish. So without further ado, Anad Sheth and Roland Shavas. Anad Sheth, Roland Shavas, welcome to your First appearance on the Global Lithium Podcast. Thank you, Joe. It's been a pleasure and uh, finally uh, an honor to be on your podcast, mate. Thank you, Joe. It's, uh, it's that funny sensation where you've been watching something for a long time and then suddenly you're, you're on it yourself. It's, uh, <laughs> it's great to be here. Thank you. Well, and that's been ducking me for the better part of five years and I'm happy to have him on and also happy to have you on as well. We're going to talk about a lot of different things from Anad's experiences, the Lithium Raj to the International Lithium Association, which has not been in existence all that long, but is timely. I want to start off with each of your backstories. Where were you born, raised, educated, and how did you wind up where you are today. So we'll start off with a nod and uh, then we'll move on to Roland. Well, thanks, uh, Joe. But let me first uh, thank you for christening me Lithium Raj. You remember our meeting in Tokyo uh, uh, when I was consulting Pilbara Minerals and uh, our chat outside and uh, I was not a Twitter or a LinkedIn fan. 
uh, you've pushed me into that and said, hey, you should be a lithium Raj. And that gave me the idea. So thank you for that, Mike. <laughs> we do what we can. <laughs> well, it's been a pleasure knowing you for so many years as a competitor uh, and as a friend after that. Uh, well, let me start my story uh, back in uh, 1999 with uh, Sons of Guarlia, if you recall the name, uh, which is now Talison uh, Lithium. And uh, I was uh, recruited basically uh, as a ceramic engineer to help develop the market for uh, lithium or spodumene in the glass and ceramics, or mainly in the ceramic sector. My predecessors had done a fantastic job. Uh, Dudley Kings North, Mike Haig, uh, and, uh, and after that, uh, they developed the industry in the glass, a uh, little bit in ceramics, and then uh, after their departures, uh, I joined to help uh, build up that uh, sector, and uh, thanks to all these people, I've learned a lot from each one of them, and John Linden was the head of the marketing then, who was keen to see the growth. A uh, very passionate man about tantalum. He was, he was the tantalum man at then. And since Gwalia was the largest uh, tantalum producers. And lithium was uh, a byproduct of tantalum. Times change. Uh, <laughs> and um, uh, Michael Tamlin was there uh, on the commercial side helping. Uh, so we both worked together. Learned, uh, I learned a lot from him too. And uh, we uh, built up the industry uh, and the target was China. John sent me, and uh, or rather, we went together to my first trip uh, as soon as I joined, uh, was on the plane to China with uh, John, uh, making an introduction with a, a new uh, trading company agent uh, known as uh, TQMM Tianchi, Sichuan Tianchi Lithium. <laughs> Uh, and uh, I met up with first time with uh, Mr. Zhang Weiping, and uh, and I was very very impressed and uh, uh, to see his passion and the investment that he had made in building a team before uh, marketing. Uh, he had already had a, a set of ten uh, sales engineers ready to shoot the Chinese market with uh, spodumene, and uh, I was uh, grilled by these 10 engineers on <laughs> the benefits of spodumene. And then I realized that uh, spodumene wasn't known as much within the ceramic industry. And uh, I had to start with how to spell spodumene with them uh, and then teach how to, what are the benefits of spodumene in the ceramic tiles mm -hmm. uh, industry and also build up the network that my predecessors, uh, Mike Haig had built up and Michael Tamlin had built up in China with the glass industry. And uh, from there, uh, the passion that Wei Ping showed was uh, fantastic, which I got on and I said, wow, this is an industry that's uh, challenging at that time, but uh, it's not impossible. So let's build it and let's open new pathways, new applications, new uses and a bigger market. So that's where Sichuan uh, Tianchi came in. You were raised in India, is that correct? And then moved to Australia after you were educated? Yes. We uh, do like I'm... to go a little further back in the backstory. But... <laughs> All right. Uh, yeah. 
Uh, I, I studied my ceramic engineering uh, in India, and then I was working in the ceramic tile industry in India and uh, uh, set up uh, some of the first uh, small-scale ceramic tile industries as a project consultant uh, with my uh, senior uh, geologist, uh, who I call as Guru. Uh, and uh, we built up that industry in five years, which is now a, a powerful force in the Indian ceramic tile industry. I mean, in Gujarat, mainly in Gujarat, which has become one of the largest. It's like what we call the Italy of India in terms of the ceramic tile sector. And okay. uh, from there, I came uh, over, migrated to Australia, and I was working with uh, a Fortune 500 company called Ferro Corporation for a few years as uh, developing the glaze and ceramic freight markets in India. <laughs> Ferro was my first big contract. Wow. Ferro was global, based in Cleveland, Ohio. We have yeah. that in common. Then you moved on to, and we'll talk about more detail later, but you went on to, to Galaxy for yes. a while with Iggy. Yes. Um, after 10 years in uh, Sons of Gali and Talison, uh, we went through the transition. And uh, then I was keen to see some uh, growth in the industry. I was very passionate, especially after the lithium battery development by Sony and uh, the growth that I was seeing you guys do in the, that sector. And I knew that carbonate at that time was important. Uh, so growth market, uh, ceramic, uh, glass ceramics uh, was there, but there was uh, a, not that fast growth as the battery industry I anticipated to be then. Uh, I saw the applications uh, once, uh, you know, on a mobile batteries, laptops, and, you know, all that uh, growth and then power tools. So I was keen that uh, uh, get into a new junior, grow some more lithium. And I had the lithium bug by then. So, yeah. <laughs> well, and then you rounded things out with our with company, with our last podcast guest, Ken yes, Brinston. Ken so. Brinston. Yeah, a few years uh, with Galaxy and then a few years uh, with, uh, again, with a new junior mining company called Pilbara Minerals uh, with the founders, uh, Neil Biddle and uh, John Young and the whole team, John Holmes and all those uh, few guys. And um, that was a very exciting journey. And great to see the way Ken has built it up. So it's a fantastic uh, team. Uh, it was great to have Ken on board to build that company up. Well, you uh, introduced so- me to Neil Biddle. <laughs> in Charlotte with VJ Meta <laughs> in 2015. So yeah, now we're, well, we're coming full circles. They had to meet the legends of the industry so that uh, they understand, the, uh, they, they get the passion, they get the understanding of how serious and how quick and important that project is. Uh, so it was great. And thanks. It was lovely. And that was how, that has helped build, uh, you know, your podcasts uh, have helped build the lithium uh, industry, uh, the education part. So thank you for that. But Okay, this has clearly been the longest backstory we have done to date. I don't want to leave Roland out. We'll hear Roland's backstory, and then we'll move back to China with a nod. Thank you, Jay. Um, my backstory is, is proportionally um, shorter. So, um, <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I was born and raised in Bristol, which is a, a city in the west of England, um, known for several things, but really just a very pleasant place to live. Um, at university, I did geography, and after that I flirted with doing a law conversion course, which 
apart from PE teacher, is about the only career you can do with a geography degree. I was always fascinated by the wider world, by, by countries, by nature. And inevitably, I took steps and ended up into the commodities world, um, starting with cobalt, back when cobalt was just a 50,000 tonne a year market. And people would meet in bars and complain about how cobalt was going to be phased out of the lithium iron battery within a couple of years. Well, that was 16 years ago, and cobalt is still pretty healthy in lithium iron batteries. Um, I could have continued down the trading route, but a remarkable man called Anthony Lippmann uh, poached me to run the Minor Metals Trade Association, which is what was then um, a, a fairly small boutique organization, which concentrated largely on getting really good lunches in London. <laughs> um, and we, we did it very well, but then we took it global. Um, we had divisions in North America and China. Um, we even had events outside of Europe in Asia, um, if Turkey is in Asia, which I know it technically is, but it's not exactly the other end of the continent, is it? We, after that, I did a bit of time trading rhenium, tungsten, ro Russian bulk chemicals, before a stint at Roskill, and then moving back to the Tantalum Niobium Trade Association, um, which is where Anand met me. Okay, we've 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 moved up to present day. I want to make one other comment though. It was interesting the cobalt comment you made. I can remember sitting in the, in the Okura Hotel in Tokyo in the year two thousand, and Doctor Nishi from Sony basically said if. You don't lower the <laughs> cobalt doesn't go down in price. We will engineer around it. I think it was I think it was fifty dollars a pound at one of the spikes, and and everybody was upset about it. And I said then, and it's still true, the the death of cobalt in in batteries was greatly exaggerated. <laughs> they were also going to get rid of LCO. LCO was going to be a thing of the past. It, this is over twenty years ago now, and. LCO is still out there too. All right, Lithium Raj, let's go back to China. So you you framed it pretty well. I didn't realize that uh, like the first meeting was with Jiang Weiping, but back then, did he have the exclusive on your material except for Xinjiang? Was that how it worked? You know it very well, Joe. <laughs> you did your good homework with me as a competitor, yes. He had uh, uh, exclusivity on the, the technical grade spodumene to develop in China and facilitate the growth of the, at that time, a, low, a high iron spodumene, a 6% grade uh, that was uh, produced for the conversion market. And uh, there were only two converters then that could uh, consume uh, in China, it was the Xinjiang one, uh, which was the oldest, I think, the first, uh, the university of lithium processing in China. And uh, in uh, Shahong, the second one, where the Tianchi's uh, plant, uh, the old plant, Shahong plant. So there were these two. Shahong uh, is near Chengdu, so, and Tianchi was located in Chengdu. And uh, eventually, Chengdu became my second home. Uh, so <laughs> the industry... Uh, for Tianchi was more growth in the glass and ceramic industry. And uh, the battery industry was just at 
its nascent stage growing, that the small percentage of the carbonate used to go into cathode making at that time, whatever was produced by these people. It wasn't the, the quality that FMC produced or anybody else, but I think uh, uh, it was suitable for the LCO. So we're LCO talking also. early 2000s right now? Uh, early 2000s, yeah. yes, yes, yes. That was the beginning. And, uh, and these two uh, companies uh, were great supporters. They actually, uh, at that time, thanks to you guys, uh, that uh, competition between the brine carbonate and the, <laughs> and the <laughs> hydrocarbonate, uh, was uh, a strong competition, but in China, with the support of uh, these two companies, uh, I think Sons of Gualia was able to support. So it was a, a very close partnership between the two companies where both made losses or both made profits uh, to compete uh, with uh, a low-priced carbonate coming from South America. <laughs> when did you first meet Wang Xiaoshan? Was that when he was with Xinjiang or was that later at Gangfei? Oh, much, much later when he, when the two young boys, Lilian Bing and uh, Xiaoshen, were uh, building up the lithium metal plant at that time. You know, they had that vision. It's amazing with Xiaoshen and uh, Lilian Bing at that time being uh, saying, we're going to set up a thousand ton lithium metal plant. This is early 2000. And uh, we'll get the raw materials. Don't worry about it. And uh, they uh, had deals with, uh, I think, uh, with all of you guys in terms of the supply of chlorides and uh, carbonates and other things. And and they integrated backwards towards the resource. Uh, and they started with lepidolite as the processing. And the technology, the knowledge was amazing. I mean, uh, with Lillian Bink, uh, I think was one of the best brains in the world with uh, the technology of converting any any lithium containing mineral or, or a product or a byproduct with um, lithium metal. So that was uh, then, and it was passionate to see their growth and their investments that they had seen that it's the future is going to be lithium. Well, you um, knew everybody as you moved around China. When did you see the turn so that chemical conversion went beyond just the, the usual suspects, which would have been what's now Tianchi and, and what's now Gangfen. At what time frame did you start to see the investments and the growth of conversion? This was around the time when we went uh, uh, into administration, 2004, Sons of Gualia, 2004, five, I think. So uh, please correct me if I'm wrong, but I think at uh, that time I found a new new refiner looking at coming in, and that was uh, Lin and Ping, General yeah. Lithium, uh, called General Lithium. And he uh, was, uh, we had the same alignment of having a refinery next to East Coast so that there was no need to transport spodumene all the way to Sichuan or to Xinjiang. You know, these are three to 4,000 kilometers. But Sichuan was well-placed with uh, the barges uh, river, the Yangtze River carrying the spodumene. So it was pretty uh, competitive then. But Xinjiang was quite far with railway transportation. So, Well, anyone who had taken a flight to Uramuchi 
from Shanghai <laughs> or Beijing in the early 2000s in one of the old Russian planes <laughs> knows very well. I was like, it was well over five hours, uh, depending on the wind. And it, I, as I understand it, Urumqi is the largest city, the furthest away from the any ocean. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> Let me just ask you, you know, you mentioned the administration situation, your employer uh, in the, I guess it was 2004, it officially happened. When I moved to China from Japan in 2005, I suddenly became the most popular guy in the lithium world because they couldn't, for a period of time, they couldn't get rock and they were desperate for lithium chemicals and... I was the only living lithium chemical guy in the country. So, yeah, it was very, very interesting. I had, and you probably remember this gentleman, he worked for Jiang Weiping and he he passed away probably in 2008 or nine. but he used to come to my office <laughs> once yes. a month begging begging for uh, lithium values. And Yeah, uh, that's uh, Zhao Ming, yes. Yeah. Uh, hats off to Zhao Ming because yeah. he was uh, very instrumental in building the spodumene business in the glass and ceramic sector. He was a passionate guy. He wouldn't sleep day and night, stress around so much about uh, how to build more business, how to create more. And uh, his vision was to get a bulk shipment into China. And uh, it took him uh, a few years to to be, it took few years to achieve that. But that was because of the passion of one person and the support from uh, Jiang Weiping to build up that business uh, in China. Yes, uh, I, I remember at that time when we were in uh, uh, in the under administration and problems, and suddenly the demand for spodumene six percent was high up. And you know what? Green bushes being a fantastic resource, uh, you know, we were using a three and a half percent feed material to make the technical grade spodumene just to be competitive in the market uh, at that time with the carbonates and uh, competition. So, and the pricing. So it was a challenge, uh, but uh, you do what you do best uh, at that time. And uh, we had uh, to work hard to restart uh, the tantalum processing plant, which was close to create a six or five and a half percent to six percent product to just meet that additional uh, demand that was going on. And it was just amazing that that helped in the planning of the expansions of green bushes. So it was amazing then. And uh, the prices at that time, I don't, I don't know, was it 60,000 or 100,000 RMB, which was unheard of. Uh, yeah, sure most, most people aren't aware that the first big lithium price spike actually happened not in 20, late 2015 and 16 and 17. It happened in 2005 to 2006. And on a percentage basis, the price of lithium chemicals went up more in that run up than it did in, in 20, the late 2015. Uh, and from there on until we had the yeah. brief, brief oversupply situation. So yeah, most people's lithium history is less than five years. So that's, that's why it's great to have you on because Thank now you. I'm, I'm not the only old guy in the room. Let's uh, move on a little bit. You traveled into China before I did. I, my, you know, my first trip to China, I was going to Asia every six weeks from 95 until 2000 when I moved to Japan, but we didn't even have China in 
Livevent, what's now Livevent, FMC Lithium, we didn't even have China in our budget presentations until 2001. And, you know, my first trip was in 2000, and I know what it was like in Western China then. When when you started traveling, what were your what were your biggest challenges? Did you sleep in your clothes in some of those hotels <laughs> in Western <laughs> China? <laughs> I remember those days well. Just wondered your experience and then uh, your multi-drinking capability. I was just coming to that, actually. <laughs> that was the challenge in China, the dinners and uh, and killing your liver. But uh, that was also part of the uh, fun part. Uh, but uh, the traveling part was uh, reasonably okay. Okay, if you had to go from Chengdu to uh, Shahong, it was taking a day uh, those days uh, until those roads became now you can reach you within a few hours. Uh, that was one. But uh, the challenge was about building the knowledge of spodumene within the glass and ceramic industry and uh, how to and facing the brine carbonate uh, pricing uh, and how to uh, work around that and make it competitive for uh, Sons of Gwalia to be profitable there. So those were the biggest challenge. But yes, Mautai was the first and the topmost challenge. You had a much smaller market. But relationships are key no matter how you slice it in China. Very true. Very true. Be- besides uh, Mautai, what were, the, <laughs> what were some of the keys to developing the relationship? It is. Uh, I think everywhere you've got to build up the trust first uh, with China, uh, with the customers. And that was a process. Uh, well, you sign a contract in China, but that's that's an engagement contract uh, to engage. That's not the be all and find all, but that's where you start building. That That's the first success that, okay, your relationship is now strong, that you've come to sign a, a, a contract. And from here and now we start talking business. <laughs> Yeah, I always referred to contracts in China as an invitation to perpetual negotiation. Very true. (laughs) I'm glad you have the same experience. (laughs) So that was the uh, important and a very good uh, experience. And I've enjoyed my time in uh, China uh, and learned a lot from all these experts uh, in China about because they've been processing lithium and developing the the whole value chain, uh, 10 years or early 2000, they had, they had that vision that uh, the future uh, growth and where they're going to move, and especially with their five-year plans, uh, the government uh, set up, uh, had targets, and uh, the entrepreneurs were working towards those targets and were supported. So that was exciting time that, okay, now we have some growth, and uh, especially the battery industry was growing dramatically over the traditional glass ceramic industry. The proportion of lithium going into that sector was growing at a much uh, faster pace than the growth in the glass ceramic industry. I'm sure you saw that too in your carbonate uh, business. Yeah. yeah, well, you spent almost a decade with green bushes, yeah. two different companies, two different owners, and you went from distribution really through Jiang Ping into the converter market. And then you see all of a sudden I started doing business with BYD in 2000. I was selling them both lithium carbonate and cathode from our joint venture in Japan. That was when the switch flipped in my mind. 
What was your experience then? You you alluded to earlier that you know you were hooked on lithium, so to speak, and then you see Iggy Tan have this vision of building this big converter, and it just happened to be right around the corner from the the plant I was getting built to make organolithiums. How did you perceive China's rise in battery? In what what time frame was this when you i mean you went to work for galaxy what in 2009 yeah 2009 i yeah i got a call i mean uh, from iggy uh, a junior mining company uh talking about uh building up a lithium mine a new the first new uh, ju- uh project since then you uh, since 2008 i think it, we just had Four people, uh, Greenbushes and the Bryans. You guys doing that. Uh, but then I saw the pie, uh, uh, Iggy came up and said, okay, we got this project. And uh, we had a coffee and uh, he comes up and says, yeah, it's about 0.91% lithium. Uh, it's uh, lithium. <laughs> I said, what are you talking? That's uh, lower than the tailings in Greenbushes. And uh, <laughs> and how much money you got? Oh, we just got about a million, but don't worry, we'll raise it. And we are going to build up this uh, uh, lithium uh, company. I said, wow, that's a challenge. But let's, I was very excited because I was very keen to go downstreaming. And I knew that the value addition is for a mine was through uh, uh, downstream processing and making chemicals. And uh, I asked him and I joked with him. I said, I'll join you if you are, if you are going to do a downstream processing because just selling spodumene, uh, uh, which is... Uh, one percent or make it to five six percent and sell it at two hundred dollars and compete with green bushes i said just forget it and uh, he laughed and said yeah we'll do it we'll go downstream and i said that's uh, okay if you do that then let's do it so so iggy's first idea did he want to build a converter and then had to find a mine or did he find a, a, a fairly low quality mine and then decide to make a converter well, he was uh, at Galaxy as the MD then. And so the, the Mount Cutton project uh, was the low grade, the 1% compared to the 3.5% green bushes was a challenge. And uh, and the only way I saw that it could work was to go downstream, uh, have a chemical plant and uh, try and make it uh, the best in a unique and a different uh, way of processing. Because of 10 years in China, you could see that the chemical plants were... Uh, you know, semi-automated, uh, not there, and at 5,000 uh, tons capacity as such, uh, but not reaching that capacity. And so uh, we thought of taking the industry on a different uh, and compete with uh, the brine carbon, especially FMC's carbonate, which was a high quality. Uh, and, and because of its automated process, we said that uh, we go to follow and build up a consistent product, which is what the lithium industry and thanks to Elon Musk actually at that time when the when he he was more popular in the Western world with this whereas in China you know BYD was already there in front you guys were doing things and BYD was building uh, the supply chain but uh, outside of China Elon actually helped us get that in uh, and with Iggy's passion I mean hats off to I've learned uh, a lot from Iggy his uh, passion about taking decisions, not waiting and moving on and saying, okay, if it comes right, today's right, tomorrow is going to be wrong, but let's just go ahead and do it. I am a big fan of Iggy Tan. 
Me too. And <laughs> even back when everybody was laughing at him, I was watching that plant get built because I went to my plant in Zenjagan regularly. And I remember the dedication. It was one of the greatest confusions I'd ever seen on the faces of Chinese people. You come out, speak some Chinese, and then Iggy comes out, who obviously Ignatius Tan has Chinese ancestry, but he was raised in Western Australia. And he walks out and everybody's expecting him to speak Chinese. And he goes, how you going? <laughs> that was and, the fun part. and people thought he was speaking Cantonese. <laughs> no, but it, it really, he was way ahead of his time. I, I really believe if, if Iggy had waited four years to start that whole thing, the only disagreement I ever had with Iggy, I said, ultimately, you're going to have to have green bushes, spodumene running through this plant because that's the only way the economics are going to make sense. And he put his arm around me and just kind of laughed. And he said, well, <laughs> you know, he had a twinkle in his eye. I think he, I think he knew ultimately how it worked out, but who, who could have imagined then that, you know, five years, six years later, you're going to have five other mining lithium mining projects being developed in Western Australia. It just, yeah. it was, it was, it was too hard to know. And, yeah, in the end, hard yeah. and in the end, Mount Catlin's still operating and looks looks pretty good in today's Bajamine climate. So, yeah, no, the foundations and the strategies that were established then, you know, with uh, you know the decisions and the speed at which uh, Iggy moved uh, and he brought everyone on table together, he pushed and uh, cajoled and brought them together. I mean, just for example, even the Zhangjiagang plant. It's again an example of how collaboration with partners, with competitors works in building up an industry where I was, uh, I had traveled uh, China on the East Coast to find a location with a team. And uh, once uh, uh, Lin and Ping in uh, uh, General Lithium here, then plant in Nantong, yeah. and he suggested uh, that there could be another site here that's of interest. And we went and looked at it and I was, we were standing on it and I said, uh, my this is the best location, I think, uh, perfect. Uh, you know, when you have a vision that you want the raw material <clears throat> coming on a vessel and unloaded on the backyard of your plant and you have the acids coming through the pipeline across the door as a neighbors and you have the carbonate, uh, you have the, the soda ash and everything supplied within the industrial park. So that Jiangjiagang location for me was fantastic. And I just called up again and said, I'm standing on a good location. He said, yep, just sign up and come back. Uh, there was no committee meetings or come back and say 10, uh, we saw the 10 different projects, 10 different sites. And so we'll make a, make a report and then we'll debate over it and do things. No, just sign up and come back. Okay. That's done. You know, those were the speed, speedy decisions. And then he said, okay, we are going to do a fully automated plant uh, and take 17,000 tons. I said, what? 17,000 ton capacity. Yeah. It consumes all the hundred percent of Mount Catlin, uh, uh, but then how are we going to get the money? Yo, don't worry, we'll get it. And uh, his passion went, uh, he went around, uh, we went around and uh, met up with uh, people all over the world. And then China finally, uh, because China was ahead, they had the vision of seeing things grow. And they uh, came in, the private entrepreneurs equity company came in and uh, helped uh, finance both the mine and the chemical plant together. I mean, that's a very unique, and that is all, hard work and the passion of uh, Iggy and the team there. So if any of you listeners 
uh, have not heard of Iggy Tan. And if you're, you're a regular listener, you probably have, because I've mentioned it more than once on this podcast. Shout out to you, Iggy. You were ahead of your time and you are welcome back in the lithium industry any time you so choose to come back. I have one more question before we, we bring Roland in and talk about uh, the, the new association. As you were traveling China, you knew what the quality requirements were in Korea and Japan for lithium chemicals, and you knew it was pretty difficult for the, the existing players uh, to make even to make carbonate, but much more so for hydroxide. So they moved pretty quickly to upgrade their processes. And what, what do you think the keys to that were? And how would you contrast that with the issues we see with others uh, who, who struggle with the, the quality? Well, see, China has the skills. Uh, you know, they 50 years of processing uh, lithium uh, is well known and uh, they they adapt things very fast they build up things they they have a very uh, beautiful circular economy of processing uh, spodumene though the byproducts are going to the industry they are circulate they are being used this was all well established they have developed that process very well and as the market started demanding for a higher quality consistent quality product they added more technology and most important thing was that the price the price was important for that the battery grade which Sichuan Tianxi developed and registered uh, in China as a standard was uh, was a was to establish a differentiation with the brine carbonates but also to meet and compete with that uh, uh, quality requirements and of course you know its price. People could produce it, but there wasn't a price for it at then. But when it came in, when you guys uh, from the Brian's had started building that industry with your high quality and consistent product, and this was one of the things where we were targeting in Galaxy at that time. And that's how Iggy branded this EV grade registered. And if you remember, uh, traceability back to the bag. That was always yes. my favorite one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> The other, I think the other kind of genius moment that Jiang Ping had was take the comparative spec of hard rock and brine, and where does hard rock have an easier, what, what analytes does hard rock have an easier time having low PPM and emphasize those even if the battery guys don't care? So you create a spec that literally the brine guys could not meet. If you took that first Chinese national spec, and took whether it was Albemarle or SQM or what's now Livent, we couldn't. There were a couple of things there that we just we couldn't meet. So then there would be they. It was a, a way to flip the discussion around to why don't you brine guys? Why don't you upgrade your quality? And it was really a red herring, but it worked. Well, it was a smart strategy, you know, it when really you're competing. Was. When you're competing with uh, brine uh, carbonates, uh, you had to create a niche of your own uh, products. Uh, that was a very smart ploy and a smart strategy that worked uh, at that time and build up. In any case, it's all it's all helped the industry grow from the hard rock side with the brines and uh, you know uh, that 
that time was hard rock brines uh, competition when there was a small pie but now the pie is so big that uh, the hard rock and brines are together i mean you know That's the right. owners the owners of uh, brines are owning hard rock and hard rock uh, and you know galaxy was one of the first at that time to think in uh, moving uh, from hard rock to brines by acquiring the that if you remember the lithium one and uh, lithium one I the do. project the james bay and basically we were targeting at that time the the second best uh, brine after uh, uh, fmc salar de hombre muerto uh, uh, saldevida and that was one of the best uh, uh, brines that we saw at that time and uh, the uh, experts advised that that's the place to go to so we we acquired that because it was for the future long term <laughs> uh, survival of galaxy well if you look at what lithium americas has done strategy wise with multiple assets it's very similar to what iggy tried to do it's just yeah. that the environment we have now is so much more amenable <laughs> And that's, again, that's just one of the things with, here's a guy who is just a few years too early. This episode of the Global Lithium Podcast is sponsored by Zolandes, a brinefield services company providing real-time, actionable data. Zolandes recently saved a major lithium brine producer up to 50% in their drilling costs and increased brine well production rates by as much as 40%. Find out more at zolandas.com. I do want to talk about one other aspect of Iggy and then bring Roland in because one of Iggy's other planned innovations was a lithium association. And at the time, we had the big three and Galaxy. (laughs) Big three weren't going to, they didn't want an association. They didn't want anything that smacked of collusion. And one of the reasons was because the two big lithium companies before SQM entered were actually under a federal trade commission consent decree. When Shen started selling hydroxide from Xinjiang cheap into Europe, there was uh, some things happened from the pricing side. And uh, there were some complaints about uh, the way the, the two big lithium companies in America behaved. That also made it problematic to think about a trade association for those guys. But now we have, as we've learned a few minutes ago, that Roland has multiple trade association experience. Roland, how did you, when you met this guy, what was the thinking behind you, you had trade association experience? Why was it the right time for lithium? Thanks, Joe. Um, it was a pretty easy decision, to be honest. Um, I, I like a challenge. I like learning new things, and um, by by then I'd known and liked Anand for about six years. As well, he's a likable guy. Nobody would argue <laughs> with that. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Absolutely. <laughs> I, I remember we met we met in person for the first time in Vancouver in twenty sorry in, in Toulouse, France, in twenty sixteen, when he was marketing the byproduct tantalum out of Pilbara. I was running the tantalum association at the time, and we, we kept in touch. Now, um, the thing about tantalum is that it's an incredibly useful, critical element. It's used in applications like satellites and superalloys, in surgical implants, in very advanced computer hardware. But the challenge there is that the market has barely grown for the last 20 years. So when Anand said, hey, mate, lithium is growing at 20% a year, 
and it doesn't have a global association, my eyes lit up and I mean, I, I, was, I was hooked immediately. And from that phone call, it took us about five months to develop the idea. We looked at, uh, we did a beauty parade of all the other associations that I've worked at and, and now we picked out the best bits. We structured it in a, we, we think a really appropriate way for the lithium industry. And then we, we took it to, to the big guys and they, well, it's been nonstop ever since. They, they really like the idea. Yeah. That su- surprises me a little only because my alma mater may be a holdout because their their lawyers their lawyers don't like the idea. But uh, let's talk about each component that you, you, you on your website. You talk about three different areas. Yeah, being so, the voice of the industry, ESG and sustainability, and then being a global authority or I think re- repository of high quality information on on lithium itself. How do each one of those play? Does is one emphasize more early on? And how do you how do you think about that? Well, that that's a really great question because it gets to the very heart of Elia's vision. The to represent the lithium industry, we take it to mean being both an ambassador, so being the voice of the industry representing interests and disseminating the executive committee's uh, positions, but also to be the ears of the industry. So listening out for the new issues coming around the corner, representing it both outwardly, but also inwardly. That's obviously one of the main functions for, for any association. What, what we were told when, when we were first approached the big guys a year ago was that to them, they felt, all of them, felt that our work should focus on sustainable, responsible, ESG, clean, hygienic lithium, high quality lithium. And really, this this is quite straightforward, because right now you have majority listed companies mining in some very, very regulated jurisdictions. You don't have any of the problems which you can find in some other commodities. Uh, That's not to say that lithium is without problems, but certainly in the grand scheme of things, they're not cobalt. Uh, well, <laughs> uh, lithium is lithium is lithium, and and I mean to, to to quote directly from the Volkswagen Sustainability Report of 2020, they've looked in detail at the lithium industry, and they're not greatly concerned in 2020 about the situation. We we do see some challenges coming forward, and to that end, as soon as we could afford it last year. We hired a company called TDI Sustainability run by Ashton Carter. These guys are responsible mineral consultants. They've worked with OECD. They've worked with lots of big car makers, RMI, several US government departments. And they're, they're really helping us go on this journey, understanding the wider ESG context, um, in particular the move from ESG towards more sustainable development goals and the, the uh, imp- importation of, of the IRMA standard. And, and other standards, to be fair, as well. If I may, to, to quote Eric Norris, the president of Lithium at Albemarle, at the Fast Markets event in Phoenix recently, where, where we, we almost bumped into each other, Joe, um, Joe uh, Eric's central theme of his speech is sustainability is essential, period. Um, sustainability, keeping the lithium industry hygienic, keeping it 
responsible keeping it sustainable is absolutely at the heart of our mission. And we never hesitate to quote Eric Norris on this podcast. <laughs> uh, so <laughs> very appropriate use. Oh, thank you. Thank before, you. before I drill down a little bit into what you just said, let me take a step back and why London is a base. London's obviously a big mining center, big financial center. Most people in the lithium industry don't touch down in London very often. It's true. And uh, it certainly wasn't because of the weather. It, <laughs> we, we've got a great time zone here. Um, it allows me to speak to Australia in the morning and North and South America after lunch. Um, we've got, we don't have much in the way of the lithium direct mining industry per se, but what we, what we are very strong on, I'd say, is the supporting structure. So you've got news guys like Fast Markets, you've consultants like Wood McKenzie, uh, financiers, as you say, Joe. Uh, we've also got world-class antitrust lawyers, which are absolutely essential. Um, our, our lawyers, a guy called Neil Bayless at Mishkondorea, and really without him, without his guidance, Eliot wouldn't have taken off because antitrust is the first thing people ask for. London, if I may add here, all of the basically. Uh, was London because Roland is established in London. So there oh, was, yeah. uh, <laughs> that's where uh, uh, we had to uh, have the base. It's, uh, always, it's always good to be important enough that you're <laughs> the reason for the location. So <laughs> congratulations. No, I'm not, I'm not quibbling with London. You got a global industry. You're right. You're, you're time zone situated for communication. People don't go to London for lithium business that often, but they like going to London, as and I can attest to that. So and co and coincidentally, uh, Europe's the next uh, region of growth after China, and I think uh, and where the policies and everything are pretty much uh, uh, they're working on it. So I think it it just happened to be a good timing to have it in London and coordinate with the European uh, stakeholders. So that's uh, that's something lucky. Europe does seem very keen on generating regulations that regulate <laughs> way out of a battery crisis. So it helps to be close to them. Yeah, there's some, uh, I, I well remember the whole reach bit and uh, all the, all the heat rather than light that was generated from that in many cases. You referenced some oncoming potential issues for the industry. Tell me a little bit, more about what you think the key things are that you'll be able to help the industry out with overall? Big question, big question. The, the key things where we can help are in coordinating, um, helping to, to coordinate the industry, uh, bringing together not only the key players on the executive committee, our, our so-called core members, and to provide strategic leadership for the industry, but also to bring in this, this broad church of everyone else in the downstream, sideways stream of, of the junior guys, the converters, the cathode makers, the battery makers. Also people like, for example, Mississippi Lime who, or, or SCT, who, who are these essential inputters into the processing. So we, we can bring them all together, I think, in a way which it'd be extremely difficult. I mean, as, as you mentioned, in an oligopolistic industry, Joe, it's really, really tough 
for two competitors to even have a conversation, let alone to actually work together on an issue. And an association such as either, we, we can provide that that town hall, that, that shared space. Yeah, I remember a time when 90% of the global lithium industry was headquartered in two small towns in North Carolina. <laughs> and my daughter's two best friends in kindergarten one's father was the CFO of my competitor and the other one had the same job I had at our competitor. <laughs> and all you had to do was have your kids ask where daddy'd been lately. <laughs> and that was one of your greatest sources of, of corporate intelligence. So it, it's, it's a much different world 30 years on. Let me ask you about now that you're up and fully functional, who's asking you the most questions? there's a lot of interest in lithium. I get calls all the time from either reporters or people that are, you know, trying to get facts on lithium or so is most of your communication right now, most of your calls from within your membership or without your membership? What a great question. Um, I'd say off the top of my head, I'd say it splits pretty much equally into three sections um the first section is people who've just discovered that we exist um and they're either trying to join because they they want they want to join the community or they expect us to have you know a a vast well-established decades old association behind us um so one of the first phone calls i had was from the minister of mines for argentina asking us for some very detailed questions about lithium. And I said, well, I'm extremely sorry, Minister, but I'm going to have to get back to you just as soon as I can. <laughs> Put the phone down and, and called up Anand as quickly as I could. So, yes, people wanting to to join us and people wanting information, that, that's a big part. Um, incoming calls, that would be, Joe. Um, the other third would be, uh, well, we're doing a lot of work at the moment with a European Chemicals Association proposal to uh, reclassify lithium hydroxide chloride and carbonate as 1A. We don't believe that this is supported by the evidence that they have found. And we're part of a a large working group with uh, UMETO and also several other leading uh, companies, leading lithium producers and processors, really to make them say, guys, just take a deep breath, count to 10, and think again if this is really what you want to be doing. Um, by all means, you know, we, we absolutely, absolutely believe in the precautionary principle. We absolutely believe that substances need to be appropriately regulated. But we absolutely do not believe that a 1A categorization is appropriate in this instance. We don't believe it's supported by the evidence. And the risk of having an inappropriate categorization for such a critically important element at this point in economic history is just mind-blowing. I mean, to say the Brits are sitting on their little rainy island, my little rainy island, um, watching it with great interest and smelling a potential business opportunity is to state an understatement of epic proportions. I think you may have to have a Brussels branch that's of the educational variety at some point, given some of the things that uh, I've read. I can tell you, though, that this is not all that new. There was a time when one of our great 50 states had a proposal that was going to have us put on the bag 
pregnant women should not eat. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, our, our, I think our response internally was, well, I guess we'll just have to quit selling in that state, which was not a big market for lithium at the time. But it's it just, it, you can't make this stuff up. A lot of the things that seem smart on a legislative whiteboard that yeah. p- proved to be idiocy when gets the, the test of some outsider trying to be reasonable. You've got a lot of work to do. And I really think your time has come. And I think I, I will ask in my preamble to this podcast, actually, I'm asking it now. I said, you guys that are listening to this and follow me on LinkedIn, you ought to be following these guys on LinkedIn. Because right now I have seven times the LinkedIn followers that you guys do. And that just shouldn't be if you're interested in the lithium industry. So, no, thanks, uh, Joe. We are all doing the same work, educating the markets and removing the media uh, stories that are not actually growing the industry, but uh, harming it with, for some personal interests of or some interests of the other lobbies. So that's why this association's work is about removing that uh, hype, uh, clarifying, and what you are doing on the other aspects. Uh, we can't talk about uh, future pricing and future forecasts and all that. That's your part of the job. Our job is to just make things a bit more clearer and support that uh, growth of the industry. So we are both working towards similar goals. I, I like to get the, the dirty jobs anyway. And uh, <laughs> I've, had, I've had to refrain from asking certain questions, <laughs> even in this podcast. What's your organization look like in 2027? How big are you? How many members do you have? I compliment you. You have the top three three lithium companies in the world as core members. You got a great cross-section of of other ancillary-related companies to the space. I think that will only increase. Maybe my alma mater will uh, smell the coffee at some point. (laughs) We hope, yes. We're looking forward to that. In f- five years from now, it would be fantastic to have, let's say, 90%. I mean, I think at the moment we hover around 70 75% of the production coming from ELEA members. It'd be That's nice. 100%. To, 100% even, why not? Um, it'd be nice to have a budget of, say, $2 million at least. Um, that would let us do some real serious work. Um it might be nice to have an annual conference, which was up there as one of the key events, dealing about the challenges in the industry, not simply the, the frothier aspects, the more exciting aspects, shall we say. It'd be nice to be recognised as a source of reliable, honest, basic uh, lithium foundation information. Um, it'd be nice to be engaged with all of the leading governments and departments but fundamentally, Joe, I think the most important thing of all, and, and that this really would be a sign that we've done our job well, is that lithium would still be responsible, sustainable, hygienic. It would avoid some of the growing pains that some other industries have experienced when they've scrambled for every last unit and perhaps standards of uh, collection have not always been maintained. 
Well, I'm enjoying this podcast, but even if I wasn't, it would be worth it just to have hygienic and lithium used in the same sentence multiple times. I have honestly (laughs) never heard (laughs) the two. And, you know, that's why it's great getting new people in because people have different lenses. Exactly. And there's never one lens that that should dominate. And that's like, like I always tell people, you can listen to my podcast, but don't take it verbatim. Do your research. Go out and cross-check everything you hear. And uh yeah, so I, I like I like hygienic lithium. What well, go ahead. To, 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 just just to justify that that comment, it's um in my in my previous job at the Tantalum Association, called TIC, about half my my job was spent uh administering or helping to administer a, a joint project we had with the tin association whereby a lot of the majority of, of tantalum is gets it used to be produced majority from australia then about 20 years ago it started being produced in in eastern congo rwanda burundi so central africa and long story short is that it it, it was one of the original conflict minerals um, the united nations got involved OECD got involved it really kick-started this whole traceability issue and, and these days every single kilo of tantalum concentrates that gets exported from central africa has got tag numbers next to it it has got a traceability profile next to it it's just a massive a truly gigantic body of work it would be nice to avoid the lithium industry getting into a situation where it was it required something similar if I if I can add here, Roland is uh, in the early 2000s. Lithium was a byproduct of tantalum, and we were uh, had a lot of challenging time to compete producing uh, high cost tantalum in Australia, and uh, f- eventually it got uh, finished. And now the times have changed in 10 years, uh, 15 years time. That lithium is going to help build tantalum because tantalum is now a byproduct of lithium. And uh, tantalum, uh, a high quality ESG part of tantalum will be supplied from Australia and lots of other mines uh, that are building uh, lithium tantalum operations. So, you know. Well, the current largest brine producer in the world also produced lithium as a byproduct for most of their life. SQM, there was not a question that lithium was a byproduct. I took CATL down to meet with them in December of 2016. And it was mm-hmm. very interesting that it was just then that SQM was starting to change the mindset and lithium was becoming a core product for them. So you, yeah. you, there are examples, the whole lithium chemicals industry didn't reach a billion dollars until 2015. That's perspective. All right, gentlemen, what should I have asked you that I did not? This is open mic night, Roland. (laughs) (laughs) I guess one thing which I find incredibly exciting, really, is that not only is the lithium industry, it's it's growing incredibly fast. There's enough enough demand there for everyone to find it. And so it has a very bright bright future ahead of it. But, and then tell me, tell me if you see this as well, Joe, but it feels like, unlike some, industries and like some commodities it feels like the more the lithium industry 
works, the more lithium it takes out of the ground into this large reservoir of reusable, reusable lithium units, it feels like it's a really good thing for the world as well. And I like that. I get really excited by that, you know. Well, I've always thought lithium was a really good thing for the world. And I think that's that's where the narratives, that's where one of the informational things that you can focus on, you know, in the future is when they compare lithium to oil, oil is consumed to generate energy. Lithium doesn't produce energy. Lithium transfers energy. And lithium can be, I won't say infinitely recycled because there's losses every time. So you can get into how many angels can dance on the head of a lithium pin arguments, but <laughs> clearly you have a, a much different situation. And, you know, the other thing that I would love to see is a document out there that rationally looks at water use in the industry, because there's just so much misinformation about evaporated brine is somehow stealing the water out of some sojourner's canteen and it's just there's just a lot of there's a lot of bad information out there and you, you can't stop the bad information but if you're the pla- if you're the go-to place for reliable information you can provide a very valuable service and that is my final editorial comment before we go to rapid fire and before you go to rapid fire joe i would like roland to talk about uh, his uh, nice quote uh, that puts everything in uh, perspective, clear perspective. Roland? Okay. It's, uh, if coal powered the 19th century and oil powered the 20th, then the 21st will be the lithium century. Okay. I called it the decade. You've gone to century, so you've beaten me by a factor of 10. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> It's a lot more to go through. Uh, lithium and hydrogen uh, both complement each other. One generates and one uh, is going to store. So both are needed in the future, 2050. So let's hope this is the future. Well, I, I think it is. And probably one, also one of the most potentially underserved markets is going to be energy storage for renewables because you look at a Mercedes EQS, that's a lot sexier than looking at a container that's got old batteries in it that's part of a peak shaving enterprise. <laughs> and the lithium industry is going to be short. And I had a conversation earlier this morning with somebody who's from that industry, the energy storage for renewables. And it, I said, it looks bleak for you because it looks bleak right now. There's going to be a lot of longer waits for EVs than there should be just because we didn't have a lithium association to encourage people to act when they needed to. Thank you. All right. You've avoided rapid fire long enough. These are, these are easy. We were trying hard for that. We'll start off with Roland. Favorite city in the world other than the one you live in. Oh, that'd be Vienna. See, easy. It's a beautiful place. Anad, how would you answer that question? I think Perth is the best one. So second best would be. <laughs> okay. Perth Chamber of Commerce, you've, your, your chairman, <laughs> Mr. Chef, has done his job. Okay, the, what's, what's your second one? 
I wouldn't live there, but I would like to visit is the Jiujiaigao Valley in uh, China. It's a Shuan. I'm sure you have visited. I've been there. Yeah, I, I have been there. It's yeah, yeah. Well, it, and I think when I went, it was before the massive tourists, the amount of tourism, and I actually landed there the first day that airport was open. Wow. And uh, yeah, that was so. Yeah, I didn't have to take the twelve-hour ride or whatever, right. whatever it is. All right. We'll go back to an odd. Give me a lesson that you learned during COVID. To communicate effectively through uh, teams and uh, meet people. Uh, that was fantastic. Uh, that wasn't something common for me, but uh, after that, it was it made easy and uh, it was great to communicate, at least keep in touch with everyone around the world, with friends and businesses and everyone else. Roland. Oh, God. As you um, look off into your garden. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I started growing some really um, quite uh, special special vegetables. Shows you how desperate the times were. <laughs> so you learned to feed yourself during COVID. Is that what I'm hearing? <laughs> More or less, yes. <laughs> a a six-foot high cabbage, which lives for five years. Roland, again, you can have dinner with anyone that has ever lived, who and why? I think it would have to be a personal one. I'd like to really meet my grandfather who died before I was born. Good answer. I've heard a lot about him. I'm told that I'm very similar to him, but we never met. Good answer. Mr. Sheth. I would say Elon Musk. Because... uh, You know, he said you. Well, he is uh, the one who has helped generate and grow this industry single-handedly. Uh, so he's a legend for me in, in terms of helping create this economy, the complete economy, creating the skills and jobs for thousands of people globally and helping and helping uh, reduce the uh, carbon emissions and creating a more sustainable future for everyone. So, yeah. It would be an honor. Final question, Mr. Sheth. You can be a world-class performer in any athletic or artistic endeavor. What is it? I would say soccer, football, the uh, Brazilian, uh, what you call English soccer. Well, I, I call it football, even though I football. live in the United States. <laughs> Roland, how would you answer that question? I'm a little surprised and I didn't say cricket, but hey, that just shows my narrow worldview. Uh, I think I'd probably go for with a, a musical ability. So playing the violin to a very high standard would be, I think, very satisfying. Okay. Well, gentlemen, we're going to leave it there. This is uh, was fun. See, it wasn't as bad as you thought. <laughs> I really appreciate you guys' time. I wish you guys the best of success in your endeavor. And if I can help you out, let me know. Thanks. Uh, thanks, Joe, for having us on. on and uh, finally, we made it. And it's been great uh, talking to you and sharing all these experiences because we've all grown together in this. So uh, it's lovely. And thank you. And thanks for your help. Yes, we look forward to your support as well in building up uh, the industry and uh, sharing experiences and challenging each other so that we could uh, grow it further. Thank you.
Excellent. Thank you very much, Joe. Thanks. Thanks. Before I close this episode, we have a first in 142 Global Lithium Podcast episodes. When we stopped recording, Roland requested a do-over on his final rapid-fire answer. And here it is. Mine would be a music one, Joe, and I'd very much like to play the guitar like Brian May. Um, Queen is my all-time favorite band, as my kids are very apt to tell me, and I think he's just incredible what he can do with that instrument. And there you have it. There's a lot of hype surrounding the lithium-ion battery space and the lithium industry in particular these days. Anad and Roland represent solid citizens. Anad's got one of the great histories in the industry, and Roland, I believe, based on his experience elsewhere, brings a skill set that will serve the International Lithium Association well. So in this case, I think the Japanese saying Hanayori Dango is appropriate. Substance over form. Thanks for listening.